All right, good morning, everyone. So glad you can make it. Hopefully, you're staying safe and dry again. I'm sure if you're like me, you heard the whole spectrum. Some people thought it was the end of the world. Some people thought it was just going to rain very lightly. Some people hunkered down like it's doomsday, and other people were like, it's just another day. And so that just shows you how blessed we are here in Southern California. We don't know how to handle anything other than just like normal weather according to our standards. So, but praise God, we're able to gather. I totally echo what Pastor Tom says. Uh, we always want to err on the side of doing everything we can together. Um, so very blessed to be able to worship and share God's word with you. If you're new or visiting, I want to welcome you. I see a couple of new faces. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a bummer that obviously you came on a day where we can't have our full fellowship after. But if you are a member, if you see a new face, please do welcome them. Encourage them to maybe uh, stick around, chat a little bit, and get to know them as well. And big shout out to education ministry as well. Again, uh, I've shared this before. I'm taking a little bit more of a hands-on oversight, and I'm just so excited to see what's going to happen. And I do think that... Uh, Anyone who has a heart for this, please just stick around. Talk to Lena. Uh, I think there's a lot of growing areas where God could use uh, more and more people to help this ministry grow. And so that's it. Just to kind of recap some of the announcements. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through a short three-week series on the book of Titus in the New Testament. And we're already actually going to be finishing that series already today. Uh, I hope it's been encouraging. Hopefully it's been challenging to you as a church. And the main hope that I had when I prayed and thought through this series was like, hopefully we can have a fresh new paradigm and look at how we understand what the church is. Particularly what is a healthy church and what does it look like for the church to grow in a healthy way. Because in a lot of ways we talked about our church is a growing church as well. And as we build and we decide what kind of church do we want to become, I think Titus lays down a good foundation and blueprint Uh, Because in our consumeristic culture, it's very tempting to overcomplicate what constitutes a good church, right? And this is especially relevant for those of you who are checking out a church or maybe you're looking for a church. Isn't it kind of a laundry list of like a good church has this and that and doesn't do this and doesn't do that. It has a certain type of building, it has a certain number of parking spots, it has a certain number of programs, they have good coffee. And we just create this super, super long list. But what Apostle Paul does in Titus, he just eliminates the fluff makes it super clear and super simple in this letter. And and for context, if you're joining us for the first time again, Paul is writing this letter to Titus, his spiritual son, to basically tell him what do you need to focus on in order to bring order and health to this new church plant on the island of Crete. And as I really thought about that, if I'm in Paul's shoes, you would think this letter would be much longer than it is, right? I mean, you're you're basically saying, here is the blueprint and manual for how you're going to build the the church (laughs) from ground up. And yet he only gives us three chapters, 46 verses. And instead of sending all these instructions, I think he's very strategic in not what he says, but what he doesn't include in order to simplify the three things he says to focus on. First, we saw in chapter one, the first thing that's critical to a church's health and growth, you just quite simply need to establish and have godly leaders. That's just totally fundamental to the health of a church. Secondly, we saw in chapter 2, in the, in the relationship within the church, the older brothers and sisters need to have a heart and an intentionality to pour down to the younger ones. That is just absolutely fundamental and critical for a church to grow in godliness. And so today we're going to see there is the third and final pillar of the church, according to the book of Titus. And so we'll see what that is in a second. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's look at Titus chapter 3 for our text for today. Again, can't cover everything, but one of the joys I had in this series is being able to read the whole book together. So as we turn there, if we could all rise together, uh, as here at our church, we believe that when we open God's word, God is present and speaking to us in an authoritative manner. So this is the reading of God's word, starting from Titus chapter 3, verse 1. 
Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. Verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, Deloria, and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good work for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's read in God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, show us again, not only in light of our text today, but in light of the entire book of Titus, what it looks like for the church to follow the blueprint you have given us. May your spirit speak particularly to our church and our context to help us to take us to heart individually and collectively as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you were here last week, I shared how the the church has more in common with an organic human body than it does with a business or a corporation. And how every health expert will agree the health of the human body, it doesn't matter who you are, is basically rooted in what they call the big three, right? Uh, Sleep and rest. Are you sleeping enough? Diet, what are you intaking as food and water? And exercise, are you exercising? Those are the big three, sleep, diet, and exercise. And each of these things are important on their own, understandably. But the vital thing that they'll tell you about this big three is they are a unit. In other words, you need all of them in order to be healthy. If you only have one or two out of the three, you can't be healthy because you're going to have an imbalanced and disproportionate health when it comes to the body. Uh, One clear and probably relatable example of this is even if you're getting decent sleep and even if you're being somewhat mindful of what you eat, If you do not exercise, your body simply cannot be healthy in the way that it's supposed to be, in the long run especially. Uh, And this is actually becoming a widespread, not just national, but global concern. Because do you know what is kind of skyrocketing heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and various other health conditions off the charts? It is what people would call the increasingly common sedentary lifestyle that many of us live. Sedentary. I learned that word one day when I was just watching Netflix sitting, and then uh, my wife said, hey, you've got to be careful not to live a sedentary lifestyle. And I thought, don't throw SAT words at me. I don't know what that means. So I looked it up, and sedentary basically means inactive. You live an inactive lifestyle. You spend most of your days sitting, lying down, and generally expending very little energy in general. That's what a sedentary lifestyle is. 
Now, I don't want to get into statistics here, but it's all over the web. It's pretty shocking when you look at the facts. A few years ago, a study was done, and it shows most adults spend over 70% of their waking hours sitting down. Isn't that crazy to think? That majority of the time you're awake, you're just sitting. And there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that shows that's not what the human body is meant to do. It's meant to function, to be active, to move around. And if your human body does not have a minimum level of exercise, the body simply cannot be healthy in the way that it's supposed to be. That's why a sedentary lifestyle is not a healthy lifestyle. I know in my own life, this was a, probably the most difficult pillar of the three to work on, in, especially my life stage as a young dad. Uh, because whenever I had free time, especially as you parents might know, you want to use it for the first pillar, right? Sleep. They even encourage that. They say, any pocket of time you have, just sleep. So I would do that. I would find moments to sleep when I could. I could generally be watchful over what I eat. Some of the times just because I don't even really have time to eat. So I'm just kind of like, you know, inadvertently watching my, what I eat. But man, trying to squeeze in this third pillar of exercise when you are exhausted from watching the kids or whatever you might be doing or after a long day of work. And here's what I would tell myself, and it sounds so convincing. I would tell myself after the day is done and whatever pocket of time I have, you know, Sam, you want to exercise, but that's not wise because you need to conserve your energy. You ever tell yourself that? You need to save your energy for more important things. And so I noticed by neglecting exercise, though, the opposite was happening. I was becoming less energetic, less motivated, and this is biologically proven because it's a well-known fact exercise is actually necessary to produce biological things like endorphins to lift your mood and increase your energy levels. In other words, it is counterintuitive to think that by not moving, you're going to have more energy. I bring this long introduction up because the third pillar of health that is growing in godliness, according to our text, is a church that exercises. Exercises our faith through good works. I think one of the growing dangers of a lot of churches is the temptation to fall into what I would call a sedentary or inactive state. I think one of the ways this could happen is if the members of the body simply go to church, listen to the sermon, hang out with some friends, and they go right back to their Monday through Saturday lives. That's what I would call a sedentary congregation. And I would argue that Paul makes the case the health of the church is more evidence, not in the gathering on the Sunday, as important as that is, but in the scattering lives of the church on Monday through Saturday. That is with a true test of fruit. That is a true test of godliness because it's not what you show in front of others on Sunday. It's who you really are in the rest of your life. And so the question I would ask then, and all of us, I hope, would consider throughout the messages, have you been working out your faith? Have you been exercising your faith? Do you actually strive to do more than just the basics of religious duty like I mentioned, which is kind of read my Bible, kind of pray, and kind of go to church? So what does it look like for the church to be healthy in this way, to, to be working out and exercising the good works? I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at the text in three ways in this consideration. And to close out this series, we'll look at first the call to good works. Second, the posture we are to have behind our good works. And third, finally, the purpose of our good works. So the call, the posture, and the purpose. So first, the call. 
So recently, uh, my toddler son Ezra, his brain's starting to spin a little bit more. He's seeing things more in 3D rather than 2D. And one thing I'm trying to teach him is this concept of like created purpose and design. That things have a, a purpose that they're supposed to fill. Because he's become very curious how things work. One of the things he'll always say is like, Appa, what's that? Appa, how that? Right? So he's, he's trying to figure out how the world works. And one of the devices that he's always been intrigued by ever since he was even younger is my AirPod. I'm trying to think, if I'm a, a, a newborn or like a toddler, how do I make sense of an AirPod? He just, it's always in my ear. Like, I'm always listening to a sermon or listening to something or music. And so when he sees it, he'll pull it out. He'll be like, Appa, what's this? What's this for? What's this, right? And I finally, I'm like, okay, I think he's the only for I could try to explain to him. So I'll tell him, this is an AirPod. <laughs> this is for listening to music. Or when I have a meeting, I'm listening to it so it's not loud, and I'll let him try it on. And when he tries it on, his eyes will light up because it's a new experience for him. And not too long ago, there was a tragedy in the Bay household. One of my AirPods got ran over by me. <laughs> it was a tragic day. It literally got ran over. So I had it on my desk. It was broken. I was planning to throw it away. And Ezra saw that. He stopped me. He's like, Appa, that's AirPod. Why are you throwing that away? Like he was, he was like mortified. Like, why would you throw away this thing? And I told him, it's not working. It's broken. It's not working like it's supposed to. It's no good. And I share that because in a related sense, the idea of created purpose and design applies to us as humans. Uh, I don't think we state it as often as we should in the church, but the Bible is actually very clear that one of our created purposes is to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 makes it very clear. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are, we are designed by a creative designer created in Christ Jesus for good works. You sitting here today, especially if you call yourself Christian, you are created not just to exist. You are created to do good works, which God has uniquely prepared for every single one of you to do before time. That's what Ephesians is saying. In other words, in Christ, one way we are living within our good design and purpose is quite simply, are we doing good works? And the idea that the gospel tells us we are a broken people, in a sense, can be understood literally in that because of sin and selfishness, in our brokenness, many of us cease to live within that good design to do good works. Why? Because as the reformers would say, what sin does is it ceases from doing good outwards and it curves you inward to live for yourselves to care about yourself, to follow your fleshly passions, as the Bible would say. But Apostle Paul, who also wrote that letter of Ephesians, makes it very clear in Titus, a healthy church is one that is striving to live within this good call and purpose to do good works. It is all over his letter. I can reference more. I'll just show you three. Titus 2.15, he gave himself Jesus to redeem us for himself a people for his own possession who are eager to do good works. Titus 3.1, remind them to submit to his authorities and to be ready for every good work. Titus 3.8, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist so that those who have believed might be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, it is blatantly clear in the scripture that Paul is making the case the roots of sound doctrine ought to and must lead to the fruit of a life with a desire and a practice of good works. And he gives a quick but helpful definition of what a good work is, right? So what is good works? Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those that believe God might be careful to devote to good works. These good works are good and profitable for everyone. So you want a simple definition according to Titus of what a good work is? 
anything done for the good of others. Another helpful way that's often described is, is the idea that you want to be a blessing. You want to be a blessing. Now he makes this clear. This call is not isolated to just our friends or just our local church or just we're comfortable with, but to everyone. He makes that super clear in verse 1 because he's saying this call to good works, it applies to the universal general public sphere and not just our role as Christians, not just our role as, as, as people in the church, but our role as citizens of a country. That's what he's saying here. You are called to be good and active citizens who care for the good of society. And this is actually why when you look throughout history, when the church is at its healthiest, it is always proactively taking part in blessing the society. Churches have historically always been at the front lines of practicing justice, mercy, sacrificing for the good of society. If you trace a lot of the good that society has, a lot of the hospitals, a lot of these mercy ministries, a lot of these homeless ministries, it always traces back to Christianity. And on the flip side, for a church to remain insular and to only focus on its own protection and community without consideration for the common good is a clear historic marker that this church is sick. It is unhealthy. So all that is to say we are clearly called in Christ through Scripture to be a people and by extension a church that regularly does good works. And I wonder, can Grace Hill fit that category? But it's not like only Christians do good works, right? In fact, oftentimes, don't non-Christians do so much better at us than good works? So what makes the Christian church different? Second point, it's our posture. What is the posture behind our good works? Now, it's no surprise that the majority of our good works will take place within the context of relationships, right? Because usually in doing good, we are majority of the time doing it for the sake of people, which implies relationships, now, for most of us, I know when we think of doing a good work, don't you typically think of like a tangible action like cleaning up trash or serving the, the homeless or serving a ministry in the church, right? That's typically, especially if you grew up in the church, that's what is quantified as a good work. And these are all good things, but notice in verse 1, after Paul says, be ready for every good work, he highlights not a practice, but a posture that we're supposed to have towards people. Notice that. He says, be ready for every good work. And the way that you be ready and the way you do that is to be kind and gentle to all people. That's what he says. He doesn't say, now go do this or do that. He says, be kind and be gentle. Now, there's something important we need to catch here. And I want to kind of camp to flesh this out because I was very convicted by this. When I was in elementary school, I don't know if this is still the case. It probably isn't. I think the education system has changed a lot. But when I was in elementary school, there were two different grades that were given on our report card. In elementary, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really mean much, but we're given a report card. And there's two different categories of grades. There was this academic grade, and then there was what I would call the social grade, which is how is he doing in like math and like science, and how is he doing with people? Is Sam being respectful? Is he listening to the teacher? Is he exhibiting kind behavior? Is he being a good citizen of the classroom in that sense? Now, some of you might be laughing idea of the social grade because we all know what society cares about. Early on, the social grade just disappears. <laughs> it just is eliminated. It very clearly early on becomes more about the academic grade, right? And for a lot of us growing up, especially not only in that general context, but with the typical Asian achievement culture that we kind of come from, our understanding of good work was whatever it takes to get the A. 
isn't it? I've seen all kinds of stuff that people will do to do the good work of getting an A and achieving. Uh, back in junior high, they would mail progress reports back home. Maybe it's digital now, but back then, they would mail it home. So what my friends would do is they would find out when the mailman's going to come. They would ditch school. They would run home, chase after the mail truck, intercept their progress report. They would literally, like a secret agent, open their progress report, alter their grade whiteout, put it back in in order to what? Get that A. Do the good work. Others of my friends would basically cheat their way through a class by copying homework, cheating on tests to get the grade. In other words, we're not, and, and I don't want to say I was exempt from this, okay? I struggled as well, and maybe some of you did. So you're feeling convicted by the Spirit right now, saying, oh my goodness, <laughs> I feel so exposed. And here's the thing. By doing that, do you realize we're not actually learning? Make sense? We're not actually growing. We're just faking it. We're faking it till we make it. In school and in other areas of life. And the worst part of it is was parents, not all parents, but definitely a lot of parents, would almost indirectly turn a blind eye because to them, good work in the end of the day was you got the grade. They didn't question the journey of how you did it or what methods you used. Just you, you gave me what I want. And I hate to put it this way, but for many of us, I wonder if this is how we were formed in our Christian faith. I am the prime example of this. It's not only someone who grew up in the church, but I grew up as a pastor's kid. I was applauded for memorizing scripture, not for living it out. I was disciplined for missing a Sunday because of how that looked, rather than being discipled into why I should even care to go to church. And this warped my understanding that good works, therefore, in the eyes of God and people is purely external and performative in nature. How can you not but embrace that? Rather than being what it should be about my posture and character behind those actions. I wonder if some of us can relate to this. A common way this is understood is the idea of someone who knows all the Christian answers. Someone who knows how to appear godly. If you think about how twisted that really is at its core, it basically means you're faking it. Um, I shared this last week. Uh, recently, I set up a home gym in my garage, and I've been much more mindful about working out. Probably, again, like I mentioned, probably the most I've ever done in my life. And it's not like I haven't worked out before, but I'm, I'm taking the time to like, relearn everything. The foundation of how to work out not just harder, but to work out correctly, to work out smarter. And so I keep reaching out to these people who have a lot of experience. And the same thing I keep hearing from those who are experienced is two important things when you work out. Your form and your posture is actually super, super important when you exercise. And doing the exercise correctly is worlds more important than just adding a bunch of weight just to look and feel like you're strong. Right? They said those people who go to the gym and they're just doing curls like this and like doing all kinds of weird forms, he's like, they're a joke. They're not actually getting stronger. They think they are, but they're not. In other words, the implication is there is an ineffective way to work out that seems like you're actually macho and you're doing a lot and lifting a lot, but in the end, you're not actually going to grow stronger because your form and your posture is off. In a similar way, Paul tells Titus to tell the church what? To be always ready for every good work. And how does he say to do that? He doesn't just say, do, do, do. Now do this or do that. But he says, mindfully, you must have the correct posture. Do it always in kindness and gentleness to all people. In other words, I would say, a lot of you guys are doing a lot for the Lord. I don't care about what you're doing. Are you kind and gentle in your doing? 
Would your coworkers, your friends, your family members, parents, spouse, kids describe you as someone who is kind and gentle? Now, in the context, I especially want to point out, Paul is more specifically referring to unbelievers and those outside the church. And that's where a lot of us need to be convicted because many of us, we have to stop right there because we live such insulated lives that we don't have a single meaningful relationship with a non-Christian outside of church. And this is problematic because Titus 3, therefore, is not applicable to our lives. And I would say something is wrong with that. Now, I'm going to touch on this a little more in the next point. But Paul assumes that Christians are in and strive to be in relationship with all kinds of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, in the church and outside of the church. Now, when you open the pool of people you are in relationship with in this way, it is a scary thing. Because inevitably, you will come across people who are harder to love, more difficult to be kind to. And so how are we to maintain this kind of posture in those types of situations? Well, let me give a personal example to, I think, illustrate what Paul would say. I used to be a youth pastor to some of you, (laughs) which is crazy to think. Some of you guys are married now, and so that's crazy to think. But I used to be a youth pastor a while back. And one of the most frustrating things I experienced was dealing with this one student who I shall not name. And don't come up to me try to figure out who it is for those of you guys who might have been my youth student. He was very, very difficult to love. I would give him rides regularly to church. I would go out of my way to pick him up. He would periodically, actually he would always fall asleep during my sermons. He would cause disruption to the ministry I was trying to do. He would not participate in group activities. He never said thank you. And to this day, as much as I would love to say, but God used it all for good, I have no idea what happened to him. (laughs) That was that. That was my tenure of ministering and pastoring to him. Now, as much as I would love to report to you that I loved him till the end, I was a faithful pastor. The reality was I borderline hated this guy, which is embarrassing to say. I'm a pastor. It's like a seventh grade. And I was like, I hate him. <laughs> I became passive aggressive towards him. I ignored his questions. I withheld my love from him. So petty, right? But let's be honest, it happens. And I definitely wasn't kind to him like I was to the other good, obedient Christian kids, right, that I had under my care. And you know what Apostle Paul would say to me in that situation? He would encourage me and say, Sam, be good to him. Because he is you. That's you. That's what he says in the text. You were also like that, but far worse towards God. Ungrateful, unengaged, distant. Everything you feel towards him is how God should have felt towards you. That's what he's saying. You are him. But instead, you know what God did? While you showed judgment and withheld love, God showed you kindness. God poured out his mercy. Not only did he tolerate your behavior, but I would say the crux of this entire text is here. He saved you. He saved you. He rescued you. You were doomed and he saved you. This is the gospel. It is only through a deep understanding of the gospel that powerfully tells you the hardest person to love in your life right now is you. And if not for the mercy of God that postures you to able to good, you are far more hopeless. And in verse 8 he says, it is that gospel that I want you to insist on. May people never forget that. May they never become so high-horsed and elevated to think that they are beyond the need for God's mercy and were saved from it. 
save from ourselves. And he says, once you believe that and it's insisted into your life, now your posture is corrected to do good works. That's what he says. So the posture we are to have in doing good works, it is rooted in the gospel, not of judgment, but of grace. And it flows into a kind and gentle foundation for how we are to love and serve others. And so a simple application to consider is this. If doing good to all kinds of people is the call, then the understandable prerequisite is to intentionally interact with and be in relationship with all kinds of people. So many of us are only used to being around Christians, myself included. That's how our lives have been shaped. We join a youth group. We join a campus ministry. We hang out with Christians. We have Christian roommates. Our main communities are Christian small groups. When we play sports, we play in church leagues with church people. In other words, how can we possibly exercise our faith to be kind and do good to unbelievers if we don't know any unbelievers? And then we think it's weird when a non-Christian comes into our church and feels weird because they're not the weird ones. We're the weird ones. We don't know how to talk to someone who's not Christian. We don't know how to talk to someone who doesn't know what a youth group is. We don't know how to engage with someone that doesn't have the Bible foundations like we do. But note, note Crete was an immoral pagan society that needed Christians who were not going to insulate and protect themselves, but that were going to interact and engage with the gospel of grace with the posture of being kindness and gentleness that they had never seen before. That's how the church was going to make an impact. And just, I'm speaking to myself. As I was preparing this message recently, a few non-Christian acquaintances I had in the past randomly messaged me on Facebook message. And just know, my wife Angela knows this, when non-Christian acquaintances message me, I leave them on scene for a very long time. Because I'm like, oh man, I like to keep my distance I don't know, I don't have the vernacular or the shared experience to engage with these people. But obviously I was preparing this message, message. So as they reached out to me on my message, I responded to them and I said, hey, you know what? What's up? Good to hear from you. How are you doing? Would love to grab coffee sometime. And because I responded, you know what he said? Awesome, great. Hey, I've been wanting to go to church more. Can you tell me more about that? That would have never happened if I didn't respond. And here's the thing. Here's how sick my heart is. My heart, without the help of God, when he asks me, can you tell me more about your supposed beloved faith that you say is all your life? I hate when people ask me that because I don't want to talk about it with non-Christians. In reality, you know what should happen? That should excite me. What great opportunity to do good, to adorn the gospel, to talk to this person about supposedly my beloved Savior that I sing about on Sunday, but on Monday he's kind of like this, I don't want to be a Christian in this context. That should excite us. But why? Why do this? We get the whole creative purpose part, but what does this have to do with church health and growth, which is the purpose? Now, again, I want to spend a little time here unpacking the idea of good works. Because if you grew up in a more reformed, conservative context like me, good works, those words are anathema to reformed people. Why? Because good, no one is good. And works, it's about faith, not works. Just know, if you, if you have that mentality, you're being unbiblical. <laughs> I literally just showed you, the Bible says to do good works. We're the ones who twist the order of it, but it is clearly in Scripture. And we've already seen through the text that Paul is clearly saying, do not be shy about doing good works in private or public settings. So let's get to the bottom of why is Paul emphasizing this so much. Well, first off, it's important to note, the word for good, it doesn't really translate to emphasize the quality of a work. 
AKA, this is a good work because it is a good, more righteous thing. This is a bad work because it is like getting drunk. That's how we think good and bad, right? We're such morally inclined as people. That's not what the word emphasizes. The word in Greek for good here, it actually emphasizes the attractiveness of something, the beauty of something. Let me give you a silly example. Right now, Angela and I are proud annual pass holders to Knott's Berry Farm, right? Now, if you had told me five years ago before we had kids to get a Knott's annual pass, I would have laughed at your face. Why? Because most would agree, qualitatively, Knott's does not compare to Disneyland, which is why before I had kids, I had Disneyland pass. Disney has the brand value. It has the prestige. It has the magic. It smells like popcorn when you walk around. It plays quality music. Whereas Knott's, I don't even know who Snoopy is. I don't know these characters. Why would I want to go there? So I laughed at my friend. But after having kids, Angela, we were trying to find something that we could do. And Disneyland, it just wasn't worth it. Right? You go there and then you go to like the Magic Kingdom. And again, I might be a hater, but this is just my experience. I hate lines. Literally, parents suffer to get parking, suffer to get onto the tram, suffer to get into the park, suffer to ride a ride, and suffer to go home. It's like suffering. <laughs> if you really think about it, right? Like it's suffering. Like it's, like the, it's like a zombie apocalypse where the strollers are. It is insane. So I told myself I vowed to never go to Disneyland when I have young kids. So I, I, we were thinking, what can we do on a regular basis? And one of our good friends was like, dude, you should get a Knott's Pass. And we laughed, but he's, I, I, I promise you, he turned into a Knott's Berry Farm evangelist. He was like, how much is a Disney Pass? I was like, I think it's like almost 200 bucks to go one day. He's like, you know how much Knott's is? It's 99 for one and a half years. There's no lines during the week, basically, which is when pastors are most free, usually. Your kid could ride a ride three times in a row if he wants. That's how, that's how nobody, there's nobody there. The parking is so easy. There's no crazy tram to ride. And if you don't want to buy food inside, there's this legit dumpling spot on the way. I'll tell you what to order. You can just take it in. Very easy. And to prove it, he pulled out his phone. He's like, here, this was us yesterday. It's like him and his family smiling. His kids are smiling, enjoying it, riding the rides. And like, just trust me, we go all the time. And what happened in that moment was our friend made something we initially didn't give a second thought to, and he made it look good. He made it look attractive. He made it look desirable. And at the bare minimum, it made us intrigued. It made us curious. Now, excuse the cheesy illustration and don't read too much into it, but as Christians, we profess and claim to believe in something far more glorious and beautiful than a knot's pass. Amen? We just sang about it, right? We hold the greatest message of the universe in the gospel of grace and the invaluable hope of salvation that is freely offered. I mean, forget $99. It's yours. It's paid for. All you got to do is receive it. It is a message that liberates us from self-centeredness, the crippling anxiety that this life is throwing upon us, covers our shame that everybody carries but is afraid to admit, calls us out of our brokenness where we can't help but do good for others because we're so focused on ourselves, and we can live free because that's what truth does. Truth frees you. And when we go, when we as the church consistently grow in practicing good works in a healthy way, and by healthy, I'm not talking about this religious thing we do, but genuinely, holistically healthy, what it does is, like I mentioned, it should at least raise the curiosity amongst the watching world. Why are these Christians doing this? Now, let me make it clear. We're not trying to sell some sort of desirable product that's not real. I like how one commentator puts it. It's up there. 
I quote, it is important to recognize Paul's logic here. Paul is not trying to persuade Christians to see their life as attractive in the sense of being easy. Instead, he expects that unbelievers will be attracted to this new life in Christ. Paul is saying that unbelievers will find life in Christ compelling, even though that life is often counterculture and frequently costly. And if they are attracted to our lives, then they may start to show an interest in our message. In fact, I've heard so many testimonies of people who formerly had no idea about church or wanted nothing to do with church who said they couldn't help but at least check it out or be intrigued because they saw this friend who was like the most hateful, angry person ever and something happened where they became Christian and they just became a new person. And they're like, I'm curious. I want to find out about that. Um, One way I think this plays out to do good even amongst people who may not agree with you. So we serve Buena Park High School staff food. I don't know if you guys know that. One of our things is we want to be a blessing. And so ever since we've been here, at least once or twice a year, we always message the administration and say, hey, we want to bless your staff. No strings attached. We just want to let you know we're a church that meets here. We want to feed you. Okay, I'm going to speak a little more personally. One of the earliest examples of when we did this was myself, uh, um, our director, Daniel Shim, and Pastor Tom. We made Chick-fil-A sandwiches and we did it. And I, there was a clear moment where I realized, okay, without getting into too much detail, some teachers were very displeased by this gesture for more reasons than one. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. It's like we're, we're trying to feed them, and they like almost seem angry. Maybe they had animosity towards Christians. Maybe they had animosity toward the church in general. Maybe they're trying to read into, do these people have an agenda? And so that almost, in the moment, my gut reaction was like, oh, why would we keep doing this? They don't even like it. I think, I think what this text would say is keep feeding them. Keep blessing them. Keep being kind to them. Confuse them. Intrigue them. That's what's going on here. And so the options are quite simple according to this text. The church can either make the gospel look good through our lives or make it look not so good through our lives. And from my experience, to bring it all for a circle, our church probably will not make the gospel look bad necessarily through bad works. I think even if we weren't Christian, most of us are too moralistic by nature. So again, I don't think we're going to make the gospel look bad. I think what's going to more likely happen with our context is we are more likely to make the gospel look powerless through our spiritually sedentary lifestyle. Again, it's not bad, but it just doesn't do anything. So why be intrigued by it? Now, this is not to say we are a sedentary church, even though that might be the vibe I'm giving off. I actually think our church is very encouraging. A lot of our members are willing to step up and serve and do good works, but we need to continue, and I must insist, like this text says, that we continue down this path. And so to close, I want to give a few practical exhortations to certain specific groups of people in the church like I did last week as we close. Uh, For some of you, as you hear this message, uh, if you're honest, you are living an inactive, sedentary spiritual life. When you hear the description of going to church most of the time, hanging out with church people on Sundays and fellowshipping time to time when the church tells you, but there's really no intentional spiritual good you're stepping outside into, outside of a Sunday, whether it's being a good witness in your workplace or to do good works for your community, can I encourage you? Exercise a little bit. Exercise your faith a little bit more. It's called the spiritual walk for a reason. It's not called spiritual sitting. (laughs) As cheesy as it is, it made that stick. Walk around a bit more. Seek to step into doing good works for the sake of not just your own spiritual health, but for the greater health of the church. And if you're curious what this might look like, 
nothing would make me happier than someone's like, I want to exercise my faith, Pastor Sam. I'm sure Pastor Tom, all of us would feel the same on stuff. If you ask us, how do I exercise my faith? We would be so happy. Talk to olders and brothers and sisters in the faith. How do they exercise their faith? Kind of like we talked about last week. And at the very least, you know what that will do for them? It will put a fire under their butt because they're not exercising their faith. And it will tell them you better because you got to pour into the younger. You see how this kind of works? Um, now, I know most of us, we're stuck in this routine, and I was as well. My night starts around 9.30 p.m. because that's when the kids go down. And I convinced myself that the most relaxing routine I had was 9.30 to do my chores. And for about an hour, I just watch a show. And I don't know when this become normalized, but this is like the universal schedule for almost everybody. I ask everyone. Like, it became a thing where it's almost custom. Like, watching a show at night, everybody does it. I'm like, why is that the case? You know, it's so interesting. So I had that routine, and I remember thinking, oh, the reason I have this hour is so I can decompress, so that I can be energized or whatever. But that's also the only time I have to work out. And for some reason, I categorize like 10 p.m. is not a good time to work out. Recently, if you talk to anyone who's in a small group with me, I'll tell them I feel much better. You know why? Because I changed my paradigm. I said, if 10 p.m. is the only time I have, that is when I will exercise. So at 10 p.m., if you come to my house in my garage, that is when I am exercising. And I kid you not, I say this very, like, genuinely. It's changed my life. You know why? Because exercise, you talk to anyone, it is one of those things you dread doing, but the moment you do it, you feel better. Such is the way with spiritual exercise. People often say, man, I really regret, or I don't want to sign up for this, or I don't want to serve, or I don't want to go do that. And usually when they come out the other end, what do they say? They say, oh, that's so good. So encouraged. I think it's very clear where the challenge is. It's to get up and make the first step. Others of you are more disillusioned and jaded because you've tried to do good and people don't seem interested. You seem like one of many or one of a few people who are genuinely interested. So you're, you're out there and I know some of you guys. Basically, the temptation for you is to say, well, nobody else wants to do this. So who cares? So you just bench yourself. It's kind of, come on, guys, come on, come on, oh, whatever, forget it, and you bench yourself. Can I encourage you, like Paul says to Titus, consider the reality that in that moment, what you might need to do and realize is God is probably saying, you got to be gracious and patient in the same way that Jesus is to you. The church, it's like turning a cruise ship. Just know one of the greatest pastoral gifts that we're trying to work on is pacing and patience. Because people, we're broken, man. We take a long time to change. And if you think that you're the only one who's not like that, we need to be humbled by the gospel. And lastly, for a lot of us, we have a desire, but we aren't sure what to do practically. Just know uh, we have a lot of opportunities coming up. One of the main visions of our church is to be a faithful presence in our city. And the heart of what we hope to do is, again, not just to get a good grade as a church, to show up, to take a selfie that we served homeless people or that we did that and they look at us, we do mercy. No, our heart and desire as pastors, we want to genuinely be a blessing to the city. And some practical ways that we're hoping to do this is like, how do we really build relationships? How do we really know that Grace Hill is a church that the city is aware of? And so whether through community groups, mercy opportunities, prayer gatherings, just know a lot of things are going to be coming up. And I guess the encouragement I would give is when those things come up, can you be ready and eager to take part in the good that we're trying to do. And so my deepest prayer to this series, we'd be healthy. God will protect us, guard our godliness as we grow to strive in our church. So as I invite uh, the praise up, can we close in prayer? If we just take a moment again, I think the call is quite simple. We are called to do good, to do good works in the various spheres and contexts that we're in. Just ask God to reveal and 
open up what, might, what that might look like in this season of life that you're in as we consider that for ourselves and for our church, and then we'll pray for us.